is a Woodside Church podcast. Lovely. I do love a prop, but a first aid box is a lot easier to carry. Okay, all right then. Good morning. morning. I'm interested to know before I start, genuinely interested, have you ever done that thing where you go to Tesco's or Sainsbury's or Aldi and you go and do your shopping, you park up, you do your shopping, you come back out and you've forgotten where your car is? (laughs) Put your hands up if you've ever done that. I'm genuinely interested to know. Okay, good, 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 good. Uh, Or the other one where you lose your keys or your phone or something else that's important in your house and you think you, you search everywhere for it you look in the most obscure places in the bin in the toilet you look everywhere and 15 minutes later or in my case two you talk to your partner and you say any idea where, where I've lost my keys and they say have you checked your pockets and you think you patronising of course I've checked my pockets but as you walk away you sort of just just for good measure uh, found it dear I'm incredibly forgetful. I'm very forgetful. But the truth is, humankind is forgetful. Maybe not as bad as me, but the humankind is forgetful. The story of the Bible is a story of people forgetting and God reminding. And you've got, in the story, you've got things like the story of judges, where you get God raises a special judge, and for a while the people are great, the judge dies... And then it says, they forget God. And then he raises another judge, and they forget God. And that is generally what happens in the Bible, time and time again. Story of the 5,000. Jesus feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And he gets the disciples to break all the bread up and pass it around, the, probably more like 11,000 people. Feed them all. That's in Matthew 14. Matthew 15 the feeding of the 4,000. And so the odds are slightly better. There's now seven loaves of bread and three fish. And then Jesus says, I, don't, I can't let these people go. We can't go. They'll go away hungry. What should we do? Clearly, he, he's testing them. You know what I did about two chapters before, one chapter before, and they say, well, there's no shops nearby, so I don't know. And Jesus says, oh, how many loaves you got? Because they forget. We forget. So, I'm going to read, this starts in the new series today, Redemption. Oh, by the way, all my post-it notes just happen to be Boris Johnson. (laughs) Thank you, children, for those post-it notes. Um, um, So, I'm going to read the the story of the Last Supper today. So, follow follow with me. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not, not, I will not eat it again until the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, which he'd give, and he'd give thanks, and he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is a new covenant of my blood, 
But behold, the hand who betrays me is at the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man to whom it is who is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them could be the one who was going to do this? And a dispute arose among them as to which of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, that, rather let the greatest among you be the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. In this story, Jesus starts with every, every teaching trick you can think of. He uses kinesthetic learning and visual learning. He says, take this, look, take it, break it, eat it, drink it. He uses social learning. He, allow, he lets the disciples sort of argue amongst themselves. Who's going to do this? Who's going to betray him? Who's the greatest? He uses logical learning, which is better, the one that serves or the one that, the one that serves or the one that reclines. He's using every trick he can use, muster to get them to remember something. It's no coincidence that he used the story, the time of the year called the Passover, that is a story in itself about the Israelites remembering what God had done for them a thousand years before. The story of Passover is a story of being freed from slavery, of God's people being captive by Egypt, and the Passover was the tenth plague, about the tenth plague, and their, and their release from slavery, and they're out of Egypt. And they would celebrate Passover in a, in a family setting. They would dress like they were about to leave the house, wearing their sandals. They would have staffs to, for the long journey. They would eat bitter herbs to remind them of the suffering. They would eat flat bread because they didn't have time for the bread to rise. It was a rush. This was what Passover was about. Every aspect of the Passover meal had a, something to remember, remember history. It's no coincidence that Jesus chose this day, of all days, to talk about the most important thing. Passover was a story, if I, hope, I really hope I don't drip this on the carpet. Please, no. Come on, there we go. Passover was a time where they remembered... Oh, where they remembered the tenth plague. You know, there's a plague where the gnats and the flies and the fleas and the darkness and the blood. And then the tenth plague, this one. And this plague was the death of the firstborn. And what the, what the Israelites did, God told them to, on every single doorframe, sprinkle blood on the top of the doorframe and the angel of death would go over Egypt and, would, and nobody in that house would die. This is what they were celebrating. So everyone was in their houses, everyone in the houses with the blood, they would be okay. And then the next thing from that was they were then released from slavery. But we don't, we don't like to talk about that, Christians. We don't like to talk about blood and death and judgment and sin because it's not nice. It's, it doesn't seem right. Almost like the God in the Old Testament is this fierce, angry guy, and the God in the New Testament is this gentle, judgment, gentle, loving, peaceful guy. But God was always the same. He was always the same. See, the thing about God is God is what the Bible calls holy. And holy means other, different, 
exceptionally pure, that when you come near to him, often in the Bible, people who come near to God, they die because he's so pure. And he can't, you can't, he can't come close to sin. So he had a predicament. The story of the Passover is the forerunner of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, where once a year they would kill a lamb and they would slaughter the lamb as a way to atone or clean them from their sin. John Stott says, what is common... Actually, no, let me read something in Exodus first because I want to show you something about holiness. So these people in Exodus, I told you the story, the Passover, they leave, they, the tenth plague happens, then they leave Egypt, free from slavery. And then they, they go on a journey, and part of it is they arrive at a place called Mount Sinai. And this is what it says about this, mount, this moment. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and thick clouds on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, at the bottom of the mountain. The Bible says, and the whole mountain trembled when God came onto that that temple. It says there's thunder, there's lightning, there's thick darkness, and there's an earthquake. Surprisingly enough, it says the people trembled. They were scared. And then God says to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through and they come up, and many of them will perish. If they come up, they'll die. Because that's what happens when sin approaches God. So John Stott says, what is common on the biblical concepts of holiness and the wrath of God is the truth that they cannot coexist with sin. God's holiness exposes sin and his wrath opposes sin. So sin cannot approach God and God cannot tolerate sin. For us to understand how serious sin is, how many sins did it take to bring about earthquakes and famine and floods and death? One. One in a garden. And the whole world was destroyed. And yet everyone in this room, me included, commits thousands of these things. Probably tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of these every year. So there was was a big problem. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you will never make yourself feel that you're a sinner because there's a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We're on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we're sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know that we are sinners and that is to have some dim glimmering conception of God. So God brought, invent, brought about the sacrificial system, that something has to die, so God let, allowed people to get the perfect spotless lamb and, and the sacrifice that as, instead of them. But that was a temporary fixture. That was never intended to be permanent. Never intended to be permanent. It's a bit like when you, when you burst your tyre and some of your cars will have a really skinny little little wheel inside the car that you use to replace, replace the one that's burst. Clearly, that's not a permanent fixture. It can get you to the garage, but that's not the long-term plan. And that's a bit like the, what the Old Testament sacrifice system was. It will get you to the garage, but that's not God's long-term plan. 
The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus was the real sacrificial lamb. In fact, when he came down three years before this meal that we're reading about, he walked to a crowd and the guy that was baptising people said, Behold, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Right from the beginning, he was, he was, he, it was true that he was the lamb. Right from his first name, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Christians, I guess, we need to, why did Jesus want people to rem- use that setting of great remembrance? I think one of the reasons is, is because we forget. We very easily forget that we are saved for one reason, and it's not us. It's the blood of Jesus. The only reason that we can enter the presence of God is because of this. And we don't have to hide in a house, and we don't just, God doesn't just pass over us, but we're able, wherever we go as Christians, we now walk with the blood of Jesus covering us our every move. We don't have to hide away anymore. This is the story of our life. We walk around saved and covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen. But we do forget that. In fact, when, when I was a teenager, I had the joy of bringing a young lad to God. And he came to Woodside. And at first, this kid was incredibly zealous. I, I, was, I would watch him and I, with amazement. He would, cry at, he would cry at the thought of Jesus' death for him. Genuinely, real tears of joy that he was saved and forgiven. It was beautiful. But it wasn't actually that much longer, maybe three months, and he started to sort of go in on himself a bit. He started to think, started to get a little bit legalistic, a bit like he followed a load of rules. He started to get annoyed at Christians who weren't on time for service. He would start to get annoyed at anyone who wasn't at the prayer meeting. Well, they're not real Christians. And he started very, very obviously, actually, he's more subtle for most of us, started getting very judgy. Because he started to believe that he was the reason he was saved. It started with Jesus, but now it's him. But Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Because we're sinful. The, the nature of our sinfulness is we start turning in ourselves and think, Jesus plus me. Jesus plus me being kind. Jesus plus me attending a prayer meeting. No, no. Jesus plus nothing. But that's not the only... It wasn't just telling us about the blood. It wasn't just... The history. It wasn't want, he didn't just want us to know about the blood. I think there was very, something very special about that setting in that moment. Because it starts with this line. And when he, the hour came, he reclined at the table. Let me tell you, the thing about reclining... I'm not the thing about reclining is it's something you do with your close friends and family. In the Bible's time, this wasn't just any old meal. This was something you did with the people that were closest to you, with your family or with your friends. And Jesus took this time with his disciples. And Jesus said, in John 15, it says this, I no longer call you servants. He goes on to say, I call you friends. The tragedy is for many Christians is that we understand the concept of forgiveness. We understand that wherever we go, God's, Jesus' blood forgives our sin and, and we, we, you know, we, we can know God. But loads of Christians 
don't understand the, the concept of being friends with God. It's not just about the forgiveness, it's about the relationship that we now have access to. We can now, not only do we stand under here, Jesus knocks on the door and says, can I come in? Can I come and eat with you? God's always wanted friendship with us. Not just forgive us, God's wanted to always be our, always wanted to be our friends. There's clues in the Bible, all over the Bible. Even Genesis, it says that God walked in the garden with Adam. Friendship, right from the beginning. In Exodus, this story on the mountain Sinai, it says that Moses would talk with God as one talks with a friend. Only Moses then, but that's possible for all of us now. Be a friend. What does it mean to be a friend of God for you? What does it mean? What does it look like? I don't say that in a judgy way at all. I don't say, what are you doing? Or what am I doing? What does being a friend mean to us when it comes to Jesus? Some of us, including my life, some of us have very, very busy lives. Some of us, I said to you, if I had to say that line, you're thinking, oh, I've literally got no extra time. Like someone said it in the, one of the words, actually, in the, at the beginning. got no time for, to develop a friendship with God. But I'm going to read this little, article, this little bit here in this book about a lady called Susanna Wesley, the mother of um, the famous Charles and John Wesley. So I'm going to read a little, little bit from it. The health of Susanna Wesley... The, sorry, the health of Susanna Wesley who was known as the mother of Methodism, was poor. Her her marriage to a penniless preacher was deeply dysfunctional. She lost nine children in infancy and raised ten more almost single-handedly. Their their home was burned down twice. Her husband was imprisoned twice. And yet her simple, honest, persevering prayers undoubtedly changed the world. Susanna Wesley proved herself to be a formidable leader long before her sons John and Charles rose to fame. I'll cut forward to a bit later in this article. Susanna Wesley was preeminently a woman of prayer. It was as she waited upon the Lord each day that her strength was renewed again and again. But none of this was easy. There was nowhere at home she could hide away and pray. So whenever Susanna wanted time with the Lord, she would pull her apron over her head. This was her prayer room, and her children knew that she was not to be disturbed. In this way, she would pour out her heart to God, mourning the loss of babies, interceding for her infuriating husband, and praying for each of her children by name. Such simple maternal prayers, whispered daily beneath an apron, could hardly have been answered more powerfully. For some of us, what does reclining look like to you? What does it look like to you? For me, it's often I hide in a cupboard and just hope no one opens that door and thinks, what the heck is he doing here? Um, But what does reclining look like to you? I've got a a good couple of friends of mine called Tim and Katie, and for them, they... They've made an agreement, they've got kids, they've got crazy busy lives. They've made an agreement that they'll go out on their own and they'll go and find somewhere that they like and they'll sit down and they'll just relax. For they, I don't know how long they have, maybe half an hour or an hour, and they'll sit there, they will relax. They might let their mind wander and think about God, they might pray, they might just enjoy, enjoy the scenery. What does reclining mean to you? What does it mean to develop that relationship with, for you? 
It's meant to be a joy. Friendship with Jesus is meant to, it's not meant to be a burden. It's not meant to be a task. It's meant to be a joy, something that you want to do. So find, if you haven't got one, find something you enjoy doing. Maybe it's taking your dog for a walk, and in that time, you think about God. Maybe it's going for a coffee once a week. But do something for yourself that you would enjoy doing, because God's, the relationship with God is meant to be enjoyable. Peter Gregg, who he started the 24-hour prayer movement, said this, God wants to spend time with us even more than we want to spend time with him. This is a mind-blowing truth. It means that whenever you make the effort to approach the Lord in prayer, he's already there waiting for you with a smile. In this, in this chapter I read at the beginning, Jesus said, I earnestly desire to be with you. The Bible doesn't use words like earnestly, lightly. They're God desires deeply to eat with you, to spend time with you, to enjoy your company. Not just forgive you, and you know, you're forgiven of your sin, off we go. God doesn't just pass over us anymore. God wants to come in and eat with us. God wants to come in and know us, have a relationship with us. God is a God that is incredibly patient with us too. In this story, Jesus is about to, about to die. He spent three years with the disciples living, breathing, living and breathing with Jesus, all, every day, all day. And right before he goes, they start having an argument about who's the greatest. These are the guys that are going to, what Jesus is going to use to change the world. Right before he goes, after all three years of learning how to be, how to be a leader, they start arguing about fundamental one, a leader serves. Jesus is so forgiving. There's my phone. Rachel sent me a text this week. I'm going to read it to you. This is one that makes her not look great. So <laughs> Normally, Rachel's perfect. Um, right, here's a message I received from Rachel. And I read this because I want you guys to know that Jesus is not like this. <laughs> okay, okay, here it goes. Rachel. Oh, I love you very much. <laughs> but if you keep leaving... All your expletive in my car and not taking all your clothes, shoes, inhaler, paint in the car, in the house, then I'm going to have to hurt you a little bit. <laughs> Next test, text, don't forget to print the label off. <laughs> Sometimes we think that about God. We get to a place where we think, he said, I forgive you, I love you. But if you do that, I'm going to have to hurt you a little bit. Jesus got hurt for us. Jesus, we, have never, we are never going to have that with Jesus. Jesus will forgive you and forgive you and forgive you and forgive you, just like he did the disciples. I'm going to read something just to finish. I've only a quick preach today. Oh, actually, it's, oh, it's time, normal time, sorry. I thought it was going to be much quicker than that. Okay, right. <laughs> I'm going to read something just to finish. And it's what this in this. I need to be. This is actually about the churches. So I, I'm slightly reading this out of context. This is about the seven. He's talking to the seven churches, and um, uh, this is in the Book of Revelations. But I can, after whatever we've read here, I'm hoping you can see that this is the case for us individually as well. Okay, it says, "Behold." I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. 
That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to forgive you, and he wants to eat with you. Because you're his friends. We're his friends. I'm his friend. Can we stand up, please? I'm just going gonna to pray for us. In a second, we're about to take communion. And as we go, we're doing communion because we think <laughs> we can't do a talk on the Last Supper and Jesus eating with the disciples and thinking about what he's done for us and not have come, yeah, come, through, come forward. Um, I'm going to quickly pray for us. And then Ruth's going to share something as well. Oh, microphone for Ruth. Great. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> All right, let me quickly pray. And then I'll hand to Ruth. <coughs> Jesus, thank you so much that you are the true Passover lamb. Thank you, Jesus, that your sacrifice was once for all time, perfectly, for perfectly fulfilling the law that we can have a friendship with God. Thank you that you don't just pass over us. You don't just forgive us and move on. You forgive us and say, I want to eat with you. Lord Jesus, we're sorry for the times, that, including me, sorry for the times that we, we busy ourselves with other things and forget we've got a God who earnestly wants us, earnestly longs for us, is jealous for us. Lord Jesus, help us. I pray, even as we share this, this communion, Lord Jesus, help us to understand how you view us. Help us to understand our hope that we have in you, our friendship we have with God. Amen. You have been listening to a Woodside Church podcast. For more information, visit woodsidechurch.com.